Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is March 20th, 2013, and my guest is Eric Topol, cardiologist, geneticist, professor at the Scripps Research Institute, and author of The Creative Destruction of Medicine, How the Digital Revolution Will Create Better Healthcare. Eric, welcome to EconTalk. Thanks very much, Ross. Now, your book is about the digital revolution and how it's transforming medicine a little bit so far and a lot more perhaps to come. I want to start with this example you give of how much of medicine today, particularly clinical trials and the efficacy of various drugs, uh, looks at the average person rather than the individual. So what do you mean by that? How is it changing now and how might it ultimately change down the road? Well, unfortunately, uh, because we didn't have the tools until now to define each individual, the default mode has been treat everybody the same. Have everybody come in for screening, whether it's a mammogram for women or a PSA for men, and have everybody come for an annual physical exam, uh, and also you know give the same drug to all patients with the same condition. Medicine has been terribly dumbed down, and the same and that's dose just because same dose too. Yeah. That's right, and the same drug that doesn't work in lots of people. So we got a real problem, uh, and that is this waste and imprecise use of all our treatments and our procedures. I mean, it's a mess. And finally, we have a time when we can rise above that. How? How's that going to ha- How's it happening now? You give some examples in the book of how recent uh, genetic discoveries have improved our understanding, but how, how might it go even further down the road? Well, it, it basically is so uh, pervasive how this can be rolled out that it's, it's why I call it creative destruction or a complete redo, rebooting of how medicine is practiced. So you pick a uh, area of interest, let's say cancer. So in cancer, um, you know, last year in 2012, there were 12 new drugs approved by the FDA, a banner year for that. And 11 of the 12, the cost of the drugs were over $100,000 per treatment. And that's pretty characteristic of most of the relatively new cancer drugs. But the way cancer drugs are given Oh, well, you have a a disease of a particular organ like prostate or uh, uh, lung, and you get a drug based on that. Well, that, of course, doesn't work very well. Not only is it a profound waste, but beyond that, we can now sequence the tumor relatively inexpensively compared to the cost of the drug, uh, drugs, because they're usually used in multiple combinations. Sequence the the tumor, find out what is the driver causative mutation, and then go ahead and treat this in a very biologically based genome-guided way. That's just one example. I mean, I can just go on and on. The kind kind that I found exciting in the book is that a lot of times drugs are ineffective or worse, have side effects that are harmful to, to fatal. And yet, we're starting to learn some of the genetic uh, descriptions of individuals that would allow us to avoid that kind of mistake. That's right. But unfortunately, Ross, a lot of this information is not used in 
medical practice today. So giving you an example of that, a drug that's commonly used uh, called carbamazepine, also known as Tegretol, that drug is given for a variety of conditions, um, neurologic conditions, seizures, and even depression, um, neuropathy. Anyway, that drug is got a one in a thousand chance, which we could accurately predict, of who's going to have a potentially fatal side effect, so-called Stevens-Johnson syndrome. But we don't screen for that, even with that knowledge in hand. Whereas in Taiwan, for example, you can't get a prescription for the drug unless you have a genotype first. So there's information that's well secured, but not being used. And that is really unfortunate. How and much that's just the genomic side. We haven't even started getting into sensors. Yeah. Well, some of the reason that we don't do those kind of tests is cultural. And you talk a lot about the conservatism of the medical profession. We'll come back to that later. Some of it presumably is cost. What does it cost to, to do that kind of uh, genotyping that you're talking about? Well, if, if we were to get with it uh, and have hospitals do in their own um, certified so-called CLIA labs, if they, hospitals did it, they could do this for a few dollars. You know, the, the actual genotype, once you know where to look, it, in fact, it could be done for less than a dollar, the actual test. It's so inexpensive. Uh, but also, moved as a cultural way that everybody had their drug genomic profile defined that we wouldn't have to give a prescription it would already be cataloged and it would be stored in people's phones or you know somewhere that it's on their personal website you know, electronic record whatever so we don't have that mindset right now we're not embracing genomics and we're not even no less making more discoveries which is happening but we're not even taking the ones that have been been made and implementing them into daily uh, care of patients. So this would be the digital side of this would be the equivalent of the bracelet that I might wear if I were allergic to some treatment or something so that I would be able to advertise to healthcare professionals something about me that's unique. But ideally, that should come about just through the my entry into the healthcare system, which of course doesn't happen right now, right? That's right. I mean, that's a pretty fair analogy. And, you know, it might I'm thinking that a lot of this would be stored on one's cell phone because that's usually uh, um, very much uh, connected to each individual, but a bracelet, a chip, whatever. Yeah, that disinformation should be available for everyone. Yeah, my my cat could have that chip, so. You know, sure, <laughs> yeah. We got more chips for our pets than we have for our people. Well, for obvious obvious reasons. They, they make people a little bit uneasy for you know, cultural reasons, but. Well, we'll talk about that later. I want to come back to what you said a second ago about uh, PSAs and um, and mammograms. One of the um, interesting tensions in your book is between individuals having a lot of information about ourselves versus uh, not enough versus not a little. And usually we'd say more information is better. Uh, but there's a lot of false positives with PSAs and mammograms, and you've given a, a very chilling and powerful story in your book of the the guy whose wife uh, gives him some kind of imaging test as a birthday present and as a result his life gets turned upside down talk about those tests why they are not always uh, a good idea and um what are some of the consequences when there are these mistakes well yeah you you've kind of touched on many concepts with that question so 
uh, on the one hand, when you have a recommendation that all people should have a PSA, all women should have a mammogram, all the data shows that that induces net harm because it's not suitable for mass medicine. But the other thing you brought up is the all the unnecessary things that are done, uh, like in that in, in that example you mentioned, um, the uh, spouse got a the, the husband her husband a uh, um, calcium score, uh, you know, a CAT scan, which indicated that he had a lot of calcium uh, somewhere around the arteries of his heart, which is a common problem in American medicine, and then that just led to this. Um, express uh, train ride that went through getting an angiogram and then having all these stents put in to multiple arteries. And this fellow had no symptoms, which is quite common, by the way. And so we have, you, you've brought up both the unnecessary procedures as well as the ones that uh, are driven because of our inability to differentiate one individual compared with the next. So we got a lot of problems with this um, this population dumbed down medicine approach that are now finally uh, there's a there's a, a solution in sight. And the other example I think that's particularly fascinating and that uh, relates to a lot of previous conversations on this program is the power of evidence, so-called evidence-based medicine. And one of the challenges, uh, I wouldn't call it a challenge, I guess I'd call it a mistake, one of the mistakes we've made in trying to make medicine more scientific is using, uh, say, various tests as our goal of lowering a score on, a, say, a cholesterol exam when, in fact, it may not be correlated with heart attacks. But, quote, it's the best we can do, so we do it anyway. Um, <laughs> we, we've, had, we've had Gary Taubes on this program who's very skeptical about uh, the role of fat, say, in, in, not, in, in heart attacks, which is what we care about, not so much in cholesterol scores. So um, what's your thought on what we know right now about those issues? Where are we? Well, we don't have um, a good body of evidence. Our, our evidence-based medicine is uh, it's a nice buzzword, but a lot of it is eminence-based medicine where a bunch of people sit around a room, you know, these experts, and they just make an um, opinion about uh, 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 what everyone should do. All patients with this diagnosis should have such and such, and that that doesn't work. And that then you can measure not, that. You can, you can grade a hospital on what proportion get that drug within that amount of time. And get yeah, a I mean, a perfect a perfect example that you just uh, brought up was the LDL bad cholesterol, and what a mistake, uh, what a misadventure that has been, because basically the benefit of uh, taking a statin for people who don't have heart disease but have a high uh, cholesterol blood test. Now, this is just fixing the blood test, which, of course, that works very well. But in terms of reducing heart attacks or preve preventing deaths, we only benefit one or two people out of a hundred. We then medicate these people. To, you know, the the whole idea of making a nice lab test. A uh, ninety-eight out of a hundred are taking the medicine just for that. And that's the most, uh, the statin drug class is the most successful drug class in the history of the pharmaceutical industry. So that just shows you how bad our approaches have been. And that's, that's one of the most solid evidence. But the evidence is scant. That is, you know, one to two per hundred, statistically significant. And people talk about the 33 
0.8% reduction in heart attacks, but that's going from, you know, two, three to two right. per hundred. So this is, this is an unacceptable, even when there is evidence, it's not evidence that's strong. We need to have overwhelming evidence. That's what we should be seeking because that's going to make everything much more precise and economically attractive, no less better outcomes for patients. So I want to come back to that PSA example because uh, as I was reading your book a couple days ago, uh, I came across an article, uh, I think it was in a British newspaper, of three urologists in their late 50s who all uh, got prostate cancer. And uh, two of them found it soon enough that they're probably going to be okay. The third one has a short period of time left to live. And all three were discovered they had, I have to be careful, not all three, but a PSA test played a role in, in, in their diagnosis and in their discovery. So are you suggesting that that's just, um, that's a small sample and I'm, that ignores the, the other people who take that exam, uh, have their prostates removed, say, for no good reason, deal with the side effects of that? You actually, you said there was a net harm to that exam. So you're saying we should not take that exam if you're over the age of 50, say? You know, That's you should right. Not get P- mammograms. PSA should not be done, and the the data for that are that there's 250,000 men each year in the U.S. alone that have a false positive PSA. Then they undergo serial biopsies. Now, not just one, but multiple biopsies, which are not only expensive but painful. And then, uh, you know, they turned out to be a false positive. So all those men who are harmed along the way, no less the emotional uh, hardship of dealing with this abnormal PSA, and they don't even have prostate cancer. And that greatly overrides the few men who actually are picked up relatively early for uh, successful treatment. So if you look at it from a population level, we're doing harm by using that test. And similarly, from mammography, the data shows no benefit in fact, that has been reviewed and published recently in the New England Journal. We continue to keep doing mammography, even though there's overall lack of benefit. But the, the answer there, and recommended by the, the authors of the New England Journal paper, was we need a better, more precise strategy. A family history of breast cancer, for example, genomic risk of breast cancer, those women should get mammography, you know, whether it's every year or even a more sensitive test. And the women who have no uh, family history or have no genomic susceptibility, maybe they get a test, but maybe only once a decade or not at all. But we don't have that type of, of uh, individualized approach today. And I think the other challenge for most of us is uh, is a temptation to then say, oh, thank goodness, I don't have to get any more tests anymore because they scare me. <laughs> but that is not the lesson. Uh, the lesson is that some tests are good and some tests are not worth it, Right. At least sure. on average. Sure. Yeah, the, the problem is everybody's been average, and that is the wrong. We couldn't be more distinct. There's not even identical twins on this planet that are the same. And so we have got to move in that direction, and we, didn't, we couldn't do it before. But with sequencing and sensors and all the other tools that we have at our disposal, it's time to do that. Let's move on to the... Uh, some of the innovations that have happened in genetics, again, so far and, and what might be coming. Um, learning more about one's own genetic makeup is very scary to some people, partly for privacy reasons, but partly because it 
I think for some people, it makes them feel like they are um, losing their their free will. They're getting too much of an advance uh, a preview of the future. They'd rather be left in the dark about their uh, likelihood of getting some disease and having that hang over them. So talk about that phenomenon and then some of your own experiences, uh, which are quite interesting. Um, well, you know, one of the things at the moment, uh, you know, I've had my genome sequenced and I'm, you know, pretty healthy. And I wouldn't recommend that now to have your genome sequenced if you're healthy. I, I did it more out of academic curiosity. But if you're sick, if you have a serious illness, which has not been diagnosed, you could make a good case today for going to sequencing a lot earlier than has ever been done before. You know, these so-called diagnostic odysseys, they are individuals who typically go from one medical center to the next, to the, the, the Supreme Court place of medicine, and they still don't have a diagnosis. Right. And and we, we just had one that we presented our genomic medicine meeting um, here in La Jolla and, in fact, had been to 10 such medical centers. But when, when we did the sequence of a, there's a 16-year-old girl with a pretty severe neurologic uh, abnormality condition, we were able to find exactly the two genes, mutations, that were causative the root cause of her illness that she'd gone 16 years and millions of dollars in this odyssey. So there is an easy one to, to I think, and in fact, even insurers are starting to say, well, maybe we should go to sequencing much earlier in the, in the saga. What does it cost right now? Saga. What does it cost well, right now? And, and what's it, what's, how's that changed in the last 10 years? Oh, wow. Uh, it's reduced more than a millionth fold. Uh, the cost of sequencing for an individual would be about $4,000 today. But in order to understand that individual, you need either siblings or parents. So you really need a trio of three. So you're talking about sequencing costs of somewhere, you know, it, it, by the end of the year, it'd be well less than $10,000, but it's in the, you know, twelve, fifteen thousand at this point with all the analysis. So it's pretty inexpensive compared to millions of dollars spent trying to get a diagnosis through the old way of practicing medicine. Is the price coming down? And the price is coming down. It's expected by year end to start to get pretty darn close to, well, less than 2,000, maybe closer to 1,000 per whole genome sequence. Now, help me with the science. Um, <clears throat> a genome sequence is, you say, about $4,000 right now. Right. There's something else that's about 400. What is that other thing? Oh, well, if you do a scan... The, of the common variants in a genome, which is really almost becoming not useful in the sequence. So you can get that even now at $99 through 23andMe. Um, there aren't many of those consumer genomic companies still standing. That's certainly one the main one. But that just gets you, um, it was $400. These have come down over time to now $99. That gets you a peek into the genome. It does get you, by the way, going back to our discussion earlier about the drug interactions, it gets you $99, somewhere like 25 to 30 major drug interactions about you. So that just that alone is a bargain in my view. But it doesn't get you every single uh, letter of your genome sequence. There you're just getting a, you know, uh, hundreds of thousands rather than six billion. Why are they going out of business, do you know? Oh, no, 20, oh, the other companies? Yeah. Not 20, well, Decode, uh, Navigenics, uh, there's been a few of them. They just couldn't, 
they were charging a lot more, you know, well over $400 and they could not get enough, um, people to uh, buy into that. And that tells you again, in 23 me brought the price down to $99 and that's starting to get a lot of, um, uh, a lot of uh, interest and support. So I think, you know, initially when Navigenics came out a few years ago, it was $1,500 for this limited genomic information of common variants. And uh, that just wasn't going to fly. They, they had bad expectations about how much people would pay for, for what was minimal information. And what do you mean by drug interactions? What, what's the well, example? Yeah, so the 23andMe panel that you that anyone can get through a saliva kit sent to them, that gets um, interactions with drugs like Plavix, um, like uh, t- um, the uh, various cancer drugs, caffeine even, um, a whole list of drugs, ones that would cut, cause a very a warfarin, you know, the blood thinner. I mean, the list, I don't remember all 27 of them offhand, but it has a lot of useful common commonly used drugs with very strong data to support uh, the the uh, variant in one's genome. But the or, interactions, like example, the interactions yeah. you're talking about are not between drugs, but between the drug and you. Yes, yeah. exactly. Okay. Between, so let's say you're prescribed to take warfarin, uh, blood thinner. Well, here you'd know what the dose you should be taking. I mean, I know that the average person takes between five and seven milligrams. I know from having that that I should only take two milligrams or otherwise I'd have a lot of bleeding. I, I don't have to take that drug, but it sure is nice to know that well in advance if it ever was prescribed. Some people have to take 20 milligrams to get the effect of their blood thinned. That's just the kind of example of information you get from that. So that's a saliva test, which is pretty pleasant. Um, right. right. If you want your full genomic uh, code, the $4,000 thing, what, yes. do you, what do you have to do? Cut off a limb? Well, uh, <laughs> Lock a hair, no, no. half your hair, no, a fingernail, no. or just saliva? You could do saliva, but really to do it right, you want one tube of blood. Um, that That's much better than trying to deal with... I mean, it can be done, whole genome sequencing from saliva, for sure. But um, I think the blood is a, is a superior... Since, you know, you want this to be as good as it gets, because this is your sequence. You know, you only really have to do this once in your life. Uh, why not do it right? And a tube of blood is pretty straightforward. So when you did it, uh, you learned about your proclivity to get a bunch of different diseases and where you were more likely than the average person, less likely. Uh, did it change? You, you say you didn't do it because you were worried. You did it because it was interesting. <laughs> right. Uh, no, because I, I, I work in this space. I have tremendous right. uh, curiosity in it. And so, yeah, I mean, it, it was... Uh, so having done it, so having yeah. done it, how did it change your behavior, feelings, or sensitivity to the psychological aspects of that kind of knowledge? Well, I mean, it's on my iPad, and I, whenever I get bored, I can study my, you know, three point four million variants from the reference genome to see what it is going on there. So it's okay. It's a nice. It's a lot of information to try to digest, but. Um, with respect to, um, I know, you know, every possible drug interaction that there, that exists today just by looking things up. Uh, and then every week when something comes out, you know, whether it's uh, a rare variant for this or that um, condition, I can look it up now. So it's basically having, I don't think it's so valuable 
uh, today as it will be in two or three years because we're going to have millions of people sequenced and we'll have so much of the holes of our knowledge filled in. But uh, it, did it change anything for me on an immediate basis? No, it just provided lots of information. And that's why I, I don't recommend at this juncture because the price point isn't there uh, and also the knowledge of millions of people getting sequenced. I don't think it's prudent to do it now, but it, I think it's going to be great in a few years from now. Be much cheaper and much more informative. Well, my wife just got her, her, her own iPad and she asked me naively how many apps I had. I didn't, I didn't tell her, by the way, because I didn't want to depress her. Uh, but I said, you know, you know, I think she thought it would be like five or six, but you know, I said it's maybe a hundred. I'm not, I don't know the answer, but I buy lots of things for my iPad that I just think are beautiful. And for 99 cents or 399, uh, I just like the idea of them. I don't use them very often and maybe just once, but somebody did something beautiful or extraordinary. And I have to say, even though I have no plans to get uh, the genomic uh, map for myself, there's something magnificent about the human enterprise being able to do that uh, for a mere $4,000. It's a lot of money. It's, quote, not worth it to me. I won't do it. Uh, thank right. God I'm healthy. But I, it is an extraordinary thing. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah, and you know what's interesting about that, Ross, is you can go ahead and download on iPad uh, an app called My Genome, 99 cents. <laughs> and it will have, it's not your genome, even though it's called my genome, it will have a person's genome and you can um, basically find out what it's like to look up every variant in a genome. I mean, it's fascinating. And, you know, you just using your fingers to explore a human genome. Uh, so it's made for people who are not uh, genomically literate. Well, it reminds that me. That gives you a feel, yeah. It reminds me of the story you tell about uh, the thrill and then not so thrilling uh, when you were able to do an ultrasound on your heart. Tell, tell, tell that story because it's rather, uh, it's, a, it's a very, uh, there's a lot of information there. Yeah, uh, well, that was pretty wild. So um, I was able to get my hands on the first um, uh, high-resolution ultrasound, uh, so-called V-scan uh, device. Uh, and uh, what I did when I got it was, of course, tested it on myself to see what was going on with my heart. And uh, I didn't think I had any heart condition. I'd had previous uh, echocardiography and whatnot. But um, I, when I did it, everything looked okay, but I had this really uh, big leak in my mitral valve. I said, oh, my gosh. And um, that, it didn't make any sense. And then I went back to the old relic stethoscope, and my stethoscope, and I said, well, I, don't, I hear a little something, but not you know, a lot of leak in this valve. And so this... I, I, I unfortunately started doing this late in an afternoon, evening, and uh, I basically had a troubled night thinking, you know, where should I go to have my valve repaired with open heart surgery? Uh, but then I, I had made an appointment the next day to actually go through the normal full echocardiogram, and that showed that I didn't have any significant leak. I had a small amount, which I thought was the case. So then I checked with the manufacturer of this device and they had a, you know, because I was like a, almost like an alpha tester uh, of this, they had a, a, a software problem. 
and uh, that the problem was I had, Oops. I had a, I, I, yeah. And so that was a, so that turned out that got fixed and now that's not an issue anymore, but I had a scare just because of having an immature technology. Um, so you don't want to, one of the many lessons out of that is you don't want to be using these things until they've been, you know, fully uh, tested and, vetted and proven that you know they don't have glitches in them like i have i had i've had a couple things like that the other one in the book was when i first got my very in my very first uh navigenics report um again one of the early uh, ones and it said i had a hundred and eight percent risk of a heart attack i said well how could i have a hundred and eight percent risk you know and i joked in the book that you know i called my wife and said i won't be coming home for dinner Actually, um, and you're but, not, and actually, you probably weren't even talking to her then. You'd probably were, you'd been dead for days. <laughs> I know. I mean, you know, if you have more than a hundred percent risk of a heart attack, it's pretty bad. You know, I said, my goodness, these things really happened. You know, and it's scary. So you want to wait a while. That's another reason to wait to get your genome sequence, even if you're healthy. Wait till we get a lot of the bugs out. There's still parts of the genome that don't get sequenced or don't get sequenced accurately. So if you're going to go for it, wait till it's. It'll be it'll be less than a thousand dollars in the next couple of years, and it'll be much more uh, useful. And one of the things that that amazed me about that story of the heart image is how much of medicine, until very very recently, until the X-ray to start, and then of course the advances we've made in other types of imaging, how much of medicine was listening both to what the patient had to say and then to what the how the heart sounded with the stethoscope. That was what you had. Yeah, it was an art, yes. very much an art. Well, well, you know what gets me about that? It's funny you mention it. So since 1816, this stethoscope, we listened so indirectly to lub-dub you know, for the heart or for bowel sounds of the abdomen, you know, sound. Yeah. Whereas now you can see everything. I mean, that is such a dramatic difference. I, I, I just can hardly adequately express that. Uh, and I used to be one of the big proponents of, you know, the new docs, the students learning all the heart sounds, all the intricacies. And I was, you know, spent hours. I don't, I, I'm afraid to think how many hours I spent at the bedside teaching that. And it was all, it's a dinosaur stuff. You know, it's all obsolete. Yeah. Oh, thank God. It's good. <laughs> Sorry. But not, not, not generally, though. It's uh, because of issues of reimbursement and because of, Will, unwillingness for the medical profession to change. It, it isn't like it's a, uh, been a shift where it should be. It, it'll take time. But that kind of creative destruction of your knowledge becoming useless uh, in many cases is um, that's a good thing usually. I think so. Some people will argue with it, but I think you're right. So you mentioned in the book that the, I don't know what the right term is, the biogenomic, the biological sciences revolution um, that started with such promise uh, in the mapping of the human genome. A lot of people argue that it never, it's been very disappointing. And you were, you remain both uh, cheerful about the present. You give, you've given some examples already, but also um, very, very optimistic about the future. You just said, for example, I don't remember this being in the book, but you just said in two or three years, it'll be, it'll be, it'll probably be worth it. What's going to change to make the payoff so much more dramatic? Because one of the lessons I got for the book, I'm not an expert in this field at all. Uh, I'm pretty illiterate. But it's striking to me how complicated the genetic map is relative to what we thought. That's the impression I got from your book. So 
given that that's true, why are we going, why are you so cheerful about the future? Well, I'm so cheerful because the we have future. a digital, yeah, we have this amazing digital infrastructure, which has not been harnessed in medicine to any significant extent yet. And just by having the the broadband, the connectivity, the social network capability, you know, all that stuff. And then you've got these ability to uh, sequence the genome, not just the DNA sequence, but, you know, you can sequence uh, the RNA, you can, all the proteins, all the metabolites, all the so-called epigenome, which is the side chain to the DNA. And, and not just, you know, of an individual, but even, let's say, a, you know, a, a bacteria or a virus that's infecting an individual. I mean, we, we have such potent tools now. Uh, and we have these sensors that can collect data in real time on virtually any physiologic metric, anything that makes us tick. So when you have all this together, the, you know, this term I use about the super convergence, uh, the likes of which we've never had in, in our history, uh, this sets off this uh, unique time, this true great inflection of medicine, which I think we're just getting started with now. Well, we see it in so many areas outside of medicine. So the obvious yeah. question is, why not medicine? And the answer isn't because we're not learning more. The answer is the industry is not very well suited to uh, deal with innovation of that kind. Uh, what do you think's going to change – with prevention, you, you, you bemoan the fact that we spend a lot of resources in medicine uh, on, of course, reacting to changes in our health, but we don't do very much for prevention. In fact, I'd say the most, for most of us, the biggest thing we do to, that's preventive is um, we exercise some, which is, I think, I, I like the idea that it, that it helps me, but I'm not so sure the science is there. Uh, we could probably do a lot better. What are some areas that you think are coming uh, that might help us be more successful in preventing disease rather than trying to cure it? Well, I think that's where um, we were working pretty hard on kind of the, the futuristic uh, notion that, again, just saying you should eat this and you should exercise that and everybody getting the same prescription, that's that's got to be wrong because that doesn't take into account the different uh, nutritional, different types of exercise for an individual. Lifestyle, the same for all people, is another poor notion. But to truly prevent illnesses that people would be destined to get, even if they have a healthy lifestyle, we got to get much more uh, information. And that might not be from wearable sensors. So that's why we've put a lot into our program at Scripps, where we actually uh, are using nanosensors uh, that can pick up a genomic signal. So whether that be from a free cancer DNA, that you know, before cancer is really taken form, but it's from a cancerous cell that's gotten uh, into the blood, or from uh, the immune system that's been activated, again, that signature in the blood, or uh, a, a cell that's coming off from a lining of an artery that's going to be the beginning of a, what will be a crack or a heart attack, and picking that up through a sensor that talks to your smartphone. That's when we can get into really big-time prevention. Or an asthma uh, sufferer to prevent the even first asthma attack. And you probably know, Russ, and children, this is the number one cause for going to emergency rooms, asthma attacks, and they can be deadly. We don't want any child to have an asthma attack, no less die of one. But we can predict that now with various metrics, predictive analytics, 
through a cell phone. And that could be not just with the child, but obviously also with the parents. Um, so being able to prevent things like an asthma attack or a heart attack or, you know, um, cancer, this is really where this newfound uh, granular information, panoramic information on each individual uh, can help. Someday that will, that will click. Well, some of it's already there, right? We, you can already um, – some of that sensor technology has been approved by the FDA, if I remember correctly. The heart uh, cardiogram, yes. The uh, digitized pills, you know, yes. Um, but we got a long ways to go to get these, uh, you know, embedded nanosensors in the blood. There isn't an asthma. There's an asthma sensor that's approved to tell you hot spots for asthma attacks in a community, you know, geographical location. But there isn't one to tell from your own metrics yet if you're, you're, you're heading towards an asthma attack. And we're talking about before anyone has wheezing or uh, shortness of breath to know they're going to have an asthma attack. Do you so think, we're, we're in the early stages. Do you think we're really going to find out that uh, for some people lying on the couch is really, and eating french fries is really what's good for them? Because <laughs> you say that lifestyle, uh, having lifestyle similarities is absurd, which I, I, I'm sympathetic to that claim, but uh, we, we do have lots of things in common. So you'd think that there'd be some general rules eating broccoli, say, or whatever it is, that might emerge, right? Even though we should be skeptical about average medicine, there must be some, there are likely some things that are on average good. Yeah, you're right. I'm not banning everything, but um, I don't think that, you know, everybody has to do the same type of exercise and eat the same food. And uh, I think for some people- the same length of time- you know, it's 20, right. it's 27 minutes of your heart at this level, and then you're then you're not going to die. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think that some people are better suited to be you know live their whole life really thin because even a little extra weight will have a lot of issues uh, addressed with that. Whereas you know some people all they don't need to exercise their their brain out; they just need to do walking or you know I, I, this whole idea of prescribing the same everything. To me, overall, I have a problem with that, but it's go, it transcends lifestyle. I mean, I think we're talking much more about how do you prevent a specific illness. Like, you know, you have a risk for melanoma. You really have to gear up for sun protection. Uh, if you don't do that, you're going to you know, really change your, your odds of, uh, of, of having that. And, you know, we need to know that at the earliest possible time. So when kids are growing up, that's, these, most chronic illnesses have their roots during childhood and adolescence, if not even before. So that's why we really have a new power of prevention. You, um, me- you mentioned uh, skin, uh, sun exposure, so I'm going to have to ask you. Um, I'm uh, very vitamin D deficient, which uh, my, my physician said I should take mega doses of vitamin D, which I did not. Um, a phenomenon, a common phenomenon in, in the world, as you mentioned, that Many people do not take their meds. Um, I thought it was a not such a good trade-off. Do we know anything about vitamin D? Because a lot of us now spend our time sitting in an office, don't get any sun exposure. A lot of people when they go outside are lathering on sunscreen, and they're not getting vitamin D from the sun. Is it a crisis? You hear that it is. What's your reading? <laughs> oh, it's been terribly overhyped. Um, and um, there are some relatively unusual circumstances where vitamin D should be uh, taken. 
but uh, the levels of what per individual are not really known. Uh, there is uh, natural vitamin D activation from being outside that isn't necessarily uh, used, but most people are not vitamin D deficient, and this has been kind of a frenzied thing whereby a lot of studies recently have really shot that down as to its importance. Uh, it's been we've kind of been going through this, you know, vitamin D fad of taking this and, and testing it and whatnot. So um, that's just one on a long, long list of things that needs to be individualized. Uh, another example that comes to mind that I don't think you talk about in the book is uh, hormesis, the idea that most things that might kill you are good for you in small doses. So wine being an obvious example that at least some people argue that a glass of red wine is um, good for your heart, a glass a day, certainly a cask of wine a day will kill you, most of us. Um but I wonder, since we don't know where that level is for most of us, you should probably stay away from arsenic, um, lead, <laughs> lead, right? Other right. things that are clearly toxic in large and fairly small doses. But it does raise the possibility, this individual medicine idea, that someday I'll know better where my threshold might be. Is that is that imaginable? And so that therefore I could take my my arsenic pills in the morning because they – I don't know, help me think better. Who never knows what it might be, what the benefits might be. But most things that are toxic are, are helpful in small doses. Is it possible we'll get to that point where I learn where my cutoff is and take a chance? Yeah, eventually. It's going to take a while because it's not on the high priority list to define it. But no no question, this, this will be worked out someday. I mean, uh, a good example of uh, is uh, mercury exposure through seafood. Um, and uh, there's a lot of different seafood that people example. eat, and some people, if they get a uh, you know a level that that's uh, uh, can be of any level, that could be really del- deleterious. And whereas others, um, you know, they they're going to be uh, fine. So th- that's there's many of these things that are uh, radiation is a great example, Ross, because. Yeah. If you send some people, you could send them for scans, CT scans, PET scans, nuclear scans. They could go every week and they'll never get a cancer. Whereas other people are exquisitely sensitive and we need to know who they are. Uh, and, you know, I'm not suggesting that some people should have scans frequently. In fact, that's one of my pet peeves that we overcook yeah, that. But, but uh, you know, it turns out, and then, you know that whole controversy with do cell phones cause brain cancer? I suspect they do in the very, very rare individual who's already genomically exquisitely sensitive. But that we, you know, it's so rare that we have an endeavor to find it. And so this this whole thing about toxicity, whether it's things that we ingest or that are exposed to in our environment, that we need to work on that. So let me bring this around to an economics example example that that we've talked about before on the program when we. Um talked to uh, Gary Taubes, and I talked about the um, the strange parallels between macroeconomics and epidemiology, which are that you have a very complex system, you have a lot of causal agents, and it's very hard to tease out the independent effect. And I think some of the hype of so-called big data is uh, overly optimistic about our ability to, to single out or measure with any precision these kind of effects that, that might be of, of concern to us. So you know, just to take an example, Taubes has advanced the view that, you know, there's a nexus between insulin production, diabetes, heart failure, um, obesity, that those are not 
three separate problems. They're one problem. They all come from insulin miscalibration, et cetera. It's an interesting idea. It's provocative uh, as a, uh, I think as a, all of us as human beings have an urge to, to, to know. And so we say, that could be it. Of course, it could not be it too. Uh, <laughs> so, so I'm curious, where do you think are the limits to these kind of advances that we're talking about? And, uh, or do you see any at all? Cause I wonder. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, I, I the, you know, I, I don't really go, let's go back on your question for a sec, because I, I, I'm just blanking on the response. Um, well, let me try to rephrase uh, it. There's a lot of things that we'd like to know about, say the relationship between exercise and, and, and longevity, between diet and longevity, between right. those things and quality of life. And it's nice to think that given enough time and enough data, we'll figure that out, not just for the average person, but for each of us. But a part right. of me says, you know, we've been trying to do this in economics for about 80 years, and we've I don't think we've gotten very far. Uh, complexity is not our strong suit statistically uh and um maybe we should be more realistic about what we're going to understand well yeah but going back to the the kind of Taub's uh concept that all these diseases are linked and that you know i think that that in part that's true but what we're learning you know is that in any given individual uh let's say let's pick diabetes for example this inane idea that there's just two types of diabetes when there's more than 20 types, and you look at it from a molecular basis, which genes, which pathways. So what I'm, as I'm coming back to you is that, you know, we are now starting to understand the, this um, pathway approach, and I think we can break this thing down. And you alluded to this, you know, big data. Well, obviously, we have an enormity, a torrent of data like we've never had before, but we have supercomputers, we have analytical capabilities, predictive analytics and machine learning like we've never had before and just getting better every day. So I actually think we can get into the nitty gritty here and uh, override some of the inability that you're getting to, you're getting at uh, in the future. I'm quite optimistic about that. So I mean, no one would ever thought you could sequence a whole genome with 600, with 6 billion to do it 40 times, 240 billion data points and be able to analyze that in, you know, minutes. Who would have thought that'd be possible? And it's very cool. But I, again, I think we're human beings and I, it's one of our challenges. Uh, we have a problem with hubris and overconfidence. You know, I look at, I look at the financial sector where people build all these complicated models and they actually think they know what they're doing. Uh, I don't think they're incentivized to know what they're doing. That could be a problem in medicine also, right? So I look at the examples that you give in the book of, of evidence-based medicine where People, you know, they think they're doing science, but they're doing what Hayek called scientism. It's just uh, they're fooling themselves. I think it's yeah, you're, you're, you're making a very good point there. And, you know, time will tell whether we can override those concerns. I mean, I think it's a legitimate uh, issue and, and only only when we have proof uh, can we really respond to that, that concern. So one of the problems uh and this is a huge topic, so we'll just touch on it because I have other things I want to talk to you about. But one of the big problems, I think, in medicine is the lack of competition. It's hard to start a hospital, very hard, as John Cochran on a recent episode of this program talked about. Um, you, uh, I, I think you started a medical school, which is yes. hard to do. Yes. Uh, it must have been incredibly yes. hard to do. 
It just, right. The system is designed to make it difficult on purpose. Now, there's good reasons that are just used to justify this, but there's some really bad reasons, like preserving one's own well-being in the face of creative destruction. So you talk in the book very eloquently about how archaic some of medical school curriculum is, how resistant medical school curriculum is to introducing topics like the ones we're talking about. Um, do you see any hope that these phenomena could be made more competitive or maybe more realistically that we can maybe somehow do an end around as some patients do around the system. They teach themselves. They don't rely on their doctor, you know? Yeah. You um, have hit on another biggie here. Uh, what I'm banking on because the systems are hard to change in the medical school, you're bringing up a, a major pain point there. Um, and at that time, um, this is back in, 2002. There hadn't been a new medical school in over 20 years in this country. Now there's a whole bunch of them. But uh, the the issue is that the power of the people uh, are is greater than the people in power, right? And so we do have an we opportunity hope. now. Yeah, yeah. We we have an opportunity like never before uh, of in the social networking era. You know, when you go back and you think, well, look what happened in HIV. That would talk about a, a difficult problem of 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 people dying and it was activism and we didn't have social networks then. And we just had people you know, parading and storming into congressional offices. And that led to definitive treatments. And, uh, you know, maybe even we're talking about cure and vaccines now, but it was tremendous progress, not a fatal disease by any means. Well, if we had that across the board in medicine, wouldn't that be extraordinary? But we can take activism now. It's exponentially more powerful. So if we could get people activated, that's actually why I did the book, uh, Russ, is because I thought that if, if everybody knew about this, who, who was willing to delve into the book and you know get activated, maybe we could rally and undo some of the problems we have of making uh, these, these uh, uh, very deeply seated, uh, difficult to change uh, systems uh, make it much more malleable and progressive. Well, let me, let me take a, let me ask you about one of them. A little trivial, somewhat trivial, but maybe it's 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 symptomatic of a of the problem in general. My my doctor, uh, and I'm sure this is not uncommon. My doctor seems less eager to prescribe antibiotics than I am to take them. Uh, I'll I'll call him or sometimes have to go see him about a problem I have, and uh, it's, it's one maybe I've had before. I, I'm pretty sure I know what it is. And um, if I'm on the road, he'll sometimes phone in an antibiotic, but sometimes he'll make me come in. And Now, is that because I'm ignorant? I think antibiotics work better than they do, and he's protecting the public from overexposure, the, the, our public health system to overexposure. Is he trying to make keep me coming in so he can make the, the money from the call? You know that that whole system is weird, right? We don't do that anywhere else. We don't do that anywhere else. You don't. If I if I go and I think I need a uh, a new uh, uh, something for my car, you know, I don't. I, I, I just go do it if I if I'm capable. Right. But it's a strange right. world. It is a strange world, and there's a lot of answers to your question. I mean, one of them, of course, is it is incumbent upon physicians to be less promiscuous with antibiotics because that's what led to all sorts of problems of resistance and we now learned in recent years how it's had drastic impact on our microbiomes of our gut and that has its own risk for diseases no less our 
<clears throat> intrinsic DNA. But the other thing you're getting at is the self-care of the future. And that is, as we have data that's widely accessible and information to the consumer, to the individual. And let's say you could validate that you had an infection and what it was and what antibiotics it was resistant or sensitive to through whether it's a urinary tract infection with a dipstick thing or, you know, whatever it was, um, an ear infection, you name it. You could then have an algorithm that gets goes right to your phone to tell you what you should take. And that, when it's once it's validated, should give you the leeway to be in charge. And you should have full access to whatever that medicine uh, would be. And I think that's where we want to be. We want to fully democratize once the data is out there and, it's, and it, we prove that it is the right way to go, better than the old model of medicine, that's how we want to go forward. That's how I see going forward. Yeah, that's a beautiful idea. So I guess the analogy would be uh, <clears throat> when I have the earache, I hold my uh, cell phone up to my ear. Yep. And uh, actually I put this little attachment in maybe that – and he gets to look on the screen in his office – to see the, how inflamed it is or whatever else might give him information. Uh, and then he's comfortable letting me have the antibiotic or I don't even have to go to him. And we could imagine a world no. where I would just... Yeah, you, know, you don't have to go to him. You don't have to go to him. It could be your child too, more apt to have the ear infection. But you get a tenfold high-resolution image of that eardrum, which is through that ad to the phone. That gets, uh, goes to an uh, algorithm and you get a text back, yes or no, on the ear infection question. And then um, you, know, you could either uh, you know, call and say, I have, uh, I have a confirmed ear infection where physicians someday trust that, uh, that without having to see you or your, or your child, whatever, and then you know, call in the prescription or someday going a little step beyond that where that algorithm is so good and this is so pat down pat that you just get a ticket to get the the uh, prescription in fact not only do you get the text back that there's an infection but you also have the um the um, medication either you're downloading it directly from the internet or you're it's, it's already available to pick up from your local pharmacy yeah well i interviewed uh, doc searles a couple of weeks ago about what he calls the intention economy and yeah, so i'd send out the picture of my Air and then a bunch of pharmacies would offer me some good deals on the <laughs> the best drug for it. Yeah, I wouldn't yeah. even have to search. Yeah, it'd be right. Great. It's now, coming. Let's. It's coming. You spent a lot of. Um, uh, you've played a lot of different roles in the uh, pharmaceutical uh, industry's discovery process. Um, you've been on panels evaluating drug efficacy. You got entangled in the Vioxx controversy, which we might talk about in a minute, but. Uh, we had Marsha Angel on this program of, oh, a little while back, and she's she sees the program as basically totally corrupt. In fact, not just pharmaceuticals and drug approval, but the entire nexus between physicians and uh, the drug device and pharmaceutical industry. What are your thoughts on that? Um, those those tensions there. Well, I think you know Marsha's an extremist. Uh, I know her and I respect her, but um, no, I I believe that. Uh, there is an imperiled uh, pharmaceutical industry because of lack of innovation, lack of uh, individualized medicine embracement. Uh, I think they will start to uh, get on this now because the whole blockbuster model of mass medicine, those days are over. 
uh, over for good. And so I'm seeing um, certainly a, a real transition, a real uh, notable change in the attitude towards using genomics and sensors and other tools to develop new drugs that are very much more effective, that aren't you know helping 2% of those who take it, but hopefully most people. I, in the book, wrote about I want to see a guarantee to succeed model. I mean, you made the uh, analogy, Russ, of, you know, buying something as a consumer. And if it didn't work, you'd take it back. Right. You know, you want your money back. I want to see that for drugs. I want to see if it doesn't work, then I'm not paying for it. That's That's where we need to be. Well, it. it, And especially with the cost of these drugs. I mean, you know, there is a drug that's now a million dollars a treatment. There are drugs, hundreds of thousands of dollars per treatment for a year, per year. And if you're cystic fibrosis, if you're fortunate enough to be a child with a specific mutation that is sensitive to the new drug Calideco, it costs three hundred thousand, two hundred, excuse me, two hundred ninety-four thousand dollars a year for the rest of the person's life until something better comes along. I mean, this is ridiculous. These these costs. But, but so it, we, if they ha- that should be guaranteed to succeed, and even then, it's too expensive. But that you know that there's a complicated set of issues there about. Regulation, property rights, patents, uh, FDA approval stuff. Um, <clears throat> it, it's got. It's, it, it, there's one thing I can make it simple. Somebody's making a lot of money out of that. That's true, but I, I think your what 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 your example about the or description of the pharmaceutical industry moving away from mass medicine. I had two thoughts, which echo your opening chapters. One is it's like cable TV. Instead of three channels producing shows that are on average popular, we get 100 channels producing shows that a lot more people love. Uh, and then the other example is The Long Tail, the Chris Anderson yeah. site. Uh, He's been a guest on this program talking about that, and you refer to it at the beginning of your book. It, we've In the digital world, very small niche markets get served magnificently, which would never have been served in the in the physical world. Isn't one of the barriers to that in the drug industry – the cost of approval and the the requirement to prove um, to prove efficacy, which, as you point out, isn't so efficacious for a lot of people. It's a it's not a very good system. So that's my rant. Um, you can react to it, or you can say what you would do to make it make it better. Well, I mean, I think that the drug development woes that you're alluding to were when they were trying to develop a drug that you could essentially give to everyone, put in the water supply. But when you are developing a drug for a specific mutation, uh, that's a whole different look. That can be done, you know, now you've got the, the biologic basis and it can be done precisely and quickly. And uh, it could also get fast tracked through the FDA. So your time to market is reduced. Your time, the number, number of patients needed to show overwhelming efficacy is, is uh, you know, trivial. And in addition, if you have overwhelming efficacy, if there happens to be a side effect, you know, the, 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 the benefit risk ratio there is so favorable. So my response to that is we, we are the long tail of pharmaceutical development that you're kind of getting at, uh, is well suited. It, it couldn't be a, a more ideal model. And what's really fascinating is once you have a drug that works on a specific pathway and mutation, for something rare, it could turn out that it helps a lot more people than than the ones Correct. who have that 
rare mutation. So um, I think this is a model that's going to start getting popular. It's very different than what way we all conceive of pharma in the yeah. past. Well, the system's not designed to make that easy, and it's partly not designed to make it easy because big pharma likes the current system. They're really good at compliance. They're really good at FDA testing, and they have an, something of an oligopoly because small competitors can't absorb those large fixed costs that FDA approval requires. So we're going to have to move to get to your world of innovation. I think we have to move to a world of uh, much more tolerance of, uh, of competition in that industry. That's right. I totally agree with you. Uh, well, um, we're, we're out of time. Let's close with uh, maybe a little bit of poetry, not the literal kind, <laughs> but, but the kind of that makes your heart feel good. Um, and I don't mean your physical heart. I meant your uh, spiritual one. What excites you? Well, you know, your book is an incredible catalog of both the current state of medicine and where it might go. Um, what what gets Eric Topol the most excited out of all that? You know, it, it's an incredible time to be in your in your field. You know, I have an 18 year old son who's got scientific leanings. I'm encouraging him and have been for a while, uh, partly because of your book lately, but also because of previous conversations with, you know, Freeman Dyson, for example, said if he was a young man, he wouldn't go into physics, he'd go into biology, because that's mm -hmm. where the, the action is, and he thinks most people feel that way. They might be wrong. But for you, what what do you think is the most exhilarating part that's yet to come? Well, that's a great question. Um, uh, I, I do think that uh, I, I wish I could go back and be an 18-year-old or be a medical student now, because the most exciting time is, of course, uh, it's going to be in the future, and that it, the the thing that the, I've worked on the most in my life, um, uh, from a, from a research standpoint, has been uh, preventing treating heart attacks. But the dream of being able to prevent one, being able to sense that it was coming days or weeks before, uh, and gearing up so it doesn't happen, uh, that to me, uh, as a singular project, is the most exciting. But as a overall landscape, the idea that we will finally be able to recognize each uh, human being, digitize what's what makes them tick, and and render specific treatments and preventions for that individual uh, at the doctor level, at the life science industry level, that to me is exhilarating. Uh, I, I can't think of a more um, ideal way to move forward and transition from this um, kind of horrible mess economically and with respect to the overall benefit risk balance that we're in today versus where we're going to go in the future, which uh, will be so much uh, more precise. And, uh, you know, eventually we will get there. It just is a matter of time. My guest today has been Eric Topol. Eric, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thanks for having me. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday. <laughs>